Greetings, I am your host, Tina Clark, and welcome to the second season of my Weirdest Experience podcast. This is the show of the weirdest experience that has ever happened to you and gives you a venue to fully express yourself and share your weirdest story with the world. This is the No Judgment Zone, a safe place to share your experience. And it's also a place where we discuss what happened to you and share some possible theories on what and why this happened. If you would like to be on the show, email me at contactstargazingangel at gmail.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. I have Dan Hank here today. He is someone who made it from a homeless punk rocker in the South to being a successful artist, writer, and tattoo shop owner. The way was a rocky road, but there seems to be a light at the end of the tunnel. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so tell the audience a little bit more about yourself. You've been through a lot, so, um, and we want to hear your story, so share it with us. I can probably, I can try and give you a brief summary, because I don't want to bore you with too many details, but uh, everything was going great. Like, my, my dad... He's military, he's a lifelong military, and my mom was like a substitute school teacher, so she worked occasionally, and I had a brother who got all my hand-me-downs, <clears throat> and we lived all over the country, like army bases, and I even lived in Germany for like three years, and everything was cool right up until I hit about 12, and that's when I first started getting into metal, and then later on I got into punk rock, and my parents are very religious, very conservative, and... Some people who are like that, they kind of, you know, this is me, you do your thing. My parents aren't like that. They're like, we believe this, you have to be exactly like we want you to be. And my dad had kind of that mentality of like, you're my cadet, I'm your, you know, senior, your your senior drill instructor or whatever. And uh, of course, I didn't go over with kids. And uh, so it, it, it created a lot of problems. It, it got worse when we moved from Florida to Virginia. And I ended up getting kicked out of the house, and they moved. So I, I kind of, like, at the time, I was doing, like, a, I was drinking a lot. I was doing a lot of drugs. And I, I was being, like, a juvenile punk rocker, basically. And I was like, you know, this isn't going to go anywhere. I don't want to be a failure. So I managed to get a job. I put myself through art school, and I moved to New York City to make it as a comic artist. And then, like, being a rocky road, you know, it, it's like, I interviewed with a bunch of people. Um, I wasn't happy with the, what they want to pay comics pay very little, by the way. And, and they give you very little control, too. So I ended up tattooing. I was thinking I was going to tattoo until I get a job doing illustration. And uh, But I liked tattooing so much I stuck with it. Um, I got married. Then I came down with brain cancer. <laughs> and then I had just gotten successful as a tattoo artist. Like I just started to have my first little bit of success. And I thought, well, I, I'm not going to give this up. So even though I had brain cancer, I was still working three days a week. Um, my girlfriend stuck by me, and I married her. And uh, so everything started going a little bit smoother. I started appearing in all the magazines. I was kind of like the splash for my 15 minutes of fame. And uh, then, uh, then I came. Then, then my girl died in Run and... Since I had come down with brain cancer earlier and she died in the hand to run, I was really, I, I was done with New York. So I moved to Austin, Texas for a while and I lived there. 
Um, but it turns out, like, my realistic style, like, big, dark, realistic style is not really big down there. Like, more American traditional is, like, the big thing. So, I was traveling a lot. I went to Europe. I did, like, a month-long guest spot in Europe. And, you know, eventually I was like, you know, I'll just, I'll move back up north. So, I moved back up north. And, uh, kind of long story short, I ended up, you know, working in a place with a guy that was, you know, he was a good guy. The shop owner was bad, so we kind of learned what not to do by the shop owner. So the two of us opened our shop, and uh, it's working out so far. Yeah, so you have the Abyss Tattoo Shop, and so your style is more conducive, more popular in the north than in the south? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I do yeah. kind of like a, a dark, heavily textured and detailed style. And, uh, like, I do a lot of sleeves. I do a lot of back pieces. And if you, like, what I found in Austin, Texas, first of all, a lot of people work in the service industry down in Austin, Texas. So they, whether they make their appointment or not depends on whether they made good tips the day before, which is really <laughs> is really disheartening and not productive when you have to pay your rent and you can't tell your landlord, hey, I didn't tattoo, you know, for a couple of days because people blew me off because you didn't make tips. So I, I started traveling a lot, and then I was like, I had people that were actually flying down from New York to Austin, Texas to get tattooed by me. And I was like, well, that's kind of ridiculous. Why don't I just move back up north? Yeah. yeah. I moved up north. And uh, the, I did, uh, the whole time I was doing like guest spots everywhere because that's where I'd make the money. You know, those are the people that were consistent, the people that come to the guest spots and come to the conventions. So one of my guest spots was in Deep Six, which is a pretty famous shop. Don't exist any longer, but uh, Paul Acker, the main guy behind it, has a different shop now called the Seance Tattoo Parlor. And I, I got along real well with those guys, and I moved up there, and that's that's where I work. And eventually that transitioned into me opening my own shop. Yeah, so um, you kind of gave us a really fast summary of, you know, some of your experiences. But what would be, you know, an odd or unusable or weird experience you could share with the audience? A weird experience? I mean, it's a tattoo game, so there's a lot of weird. <laughs> oh, good. Um, I mean, most of, most of my weirdest things happened when I first started tattooing. And the thing is, in those days when you were tattooing, it, it's not like it is now. Like, now it seems like, like we kind of, like, us old school tattooers kind of make fun of the new tattooers. Like, you have no idea what went on. Because it was like almost a Wild West of tattooing in those days. Like, other tattooers hated you, not because of any reason other than they were jealous. Or like, I could be making the money that he's making. So everybody was at each other's throats. Nobody, you know, customer-wise had any idea what tattoos were. There were no tattoo shows or anything. So they, they come in, they demand this or demand that, and we're like, that's not possible. And people were trying out all sorts of stuff. And again, because there was no social media, people didn't know, hey, that doesn't heal well. That didn't hold up all over time. So, yeah, there's a lot of back and forth. Like, I, I could tell you endless stories about all the wild and crazy customers that came in in my early days. Yeah, so when we're talking about the early days, like what, what year or time period we're talking about? Like 98, 99, which yeah. that, that's not even the early days of tattooing, but for me, that was the early days. Right, right. So I remember like, um, I got mine, when did I get mine? 
probably in the early 90s. And back in the early 90s, like tattoos were not acceptable at the time, right? You remember that? So uh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I remember well. I remember and a guy I, I who I remember Sorry, a guy who wanted to be, who had a tattoo on his wrist and he wanted to be a model, but he couldn't get any jobs because of the tattoo. And now you have full tattoo models, you know. Yep, yep. But I remember I was a bike messenger and I lived in Virginia and I, I was a messenger in DC and there was no place near where I lived in Virginia or in DC, the tattoo. So I had to go to Maryland to go to a tattoo parlor to get my first tattoo. Wow. They, now there are places downtown DC, all over the area of Virginia. But at the time it was, uh, it was a pretty sheltered community. Yeah. So what do you think changed? What do you, why do you think tattoos became more acceptable? Well, I, I think a lot of things changed. Um, the public perspective changed. Like, like it used to be that it was that punk rock and metal was real dangerous, and now it's just like, oh, it's just another genre. Some people are into it, some people aren't. I think a lot of that happened with tattooing, and I think they said that under thirty-six, like eighty percent of the population was tattooed. And, you know, which is those are crazy numbers compared to the old days. Wow. Like the old days is only for like skiers and bikers and stuff like that. But it's, I think, a lot of people like it because, like, here's what I've noticed. That when I go to Europe, you know, a lot of people are more into being exactly like their neighbor. Whereas when you go to the U.S., everybody, is, they want to be individuals. Like, you know, if you get a car, the first thing you do is you tint the windows. You know, maybe you put rims on it. Or you do something to kind of make it yours. And if you go to Europe, it's like, well, what does my neighbor have? I want the exact same car they have. And nobody, not nobody, but the vast majority of people don't alter their car. So it's almost like uh, people are here customizing their bodies with tattoos. Right. No, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. I, I do, like, I, at one point I did, um, I did a month-long trip, you know, from country to country in Europe. And... What people are concerned with is tattoos that they can hide. They they don't want large tattoos. It's it's just it's a much different environment there. Like mm -hmm. here, people want to see it, and you actually have to talk people out and put it in some places that might cost them a job. Whereas in Europe, their first their first concern is you know being able to hide it from people. Hmm. Well, I think that's a good thing. I think it's good that you know Americans want to be different you know they want to be in individuals you know right. growing up in new york city we know people never were like each other you know everybody was always different from yeah, each other there's a million different cultures here i think that's great i think it's great that everybody can learn off each other and express it like the the one thing that we totally export now is our culture you know, we, we have so much going on. Some of it is horrible, like Michael Bay movies. And some of it is great, like, you know, we'll have great musicians or great underground movies or whatever. You know, but everything's here. It's a broad spectrum. It's a melting pot. Yeah. Is there anything about tattooing now that's still forbidden? All right. Nobody... Uh, th there were a lot of laws, and even when I started, and I call them the old days, but they're really not the old days. You know, <laughs> the old days. Um, 
these, you know, like they found like a 3,000 year old Egyptian mummy that's tattooed. So I, I can't really call it the old days, but the old days for me, when I started, I remember it was, you were really looked down on if you didn't have somebody to teach you how to tattoo and apprentice, you know, apprenticeship. So you needed a mentor and you needed to be able to tell other shops, this was my mentor. And they would often call that person and ask how you were, you know, as a person, all that, like that was very, very important. Um, there were, there were a number of other things like, uh, you don't tattoo the neck, you don't tattoo the hands, unless they have a lot of tattoos and they're of a certain age. And like, there, there's a joke that it used to be the neck tattoo, man, I'm a bad motherfucker, stay away from me. And now it means, let me read you my vegan poetry. <laughs> and so for the audience, they're not seeing the video for this, but you do have a tattoo on your face. So do people give you a hard time about that? Well, they, not as much as they used to. I mean, I, I have my whole head tattooed. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, the thing is, I've kind of learned from being like a punk rocker in the South to not really care when other people are staring. <laughs> <laughs> I know it bothers my girlfriend more than it bothers me. Like I, I'll go to the gym or I'll go to a restaurant and people are just, they, they can't take their eyes off of it. And I'm like, and she's like, Oh, did you see that person? I'm like, no, I, I really don't pay attention. I don't care. Yeah. You know, anybody can, anybody can look, anybody can stare. It's like, it, it only affects me if they say something or they act out, you know, otherwise it's like, whatever, who cares? Yeah. So do you think what you tattoo on your body could affect somebody, like somebody's life or personality? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Can there, you give an example, give examples of that? There's a guy um, that I tattoo and I remember, so his brother died of a heroin overdose. And so he wanted a whole sleeve where like it kind of commemorated him and his brother and he wanted it on the dark side, so it was like a skull that represented him, a skull that represented... It was like, so it was a whole sleeve, including like a heroin needle and everything. Wow. So I, I did that whole thing on him, and he was in the Twin Towers when they went down, and he has permanent PTSD because of the Twin Towers. And so he wasn't allowed to go back to work for quite a while. So his wife that he'd had for 27 years, like they have kids together, he's putting the kids through college, he's a really good guy. But he was doing all this, and she's like, well, I'm going to work. Like, maybe maybe she couldn't stand being in the house all the time, you know. But so she went she went to work. He was like, okay. And then she cheated on him with one of the coworkers at work. And, and when he found out about that, he was like, you know, he didn't flip out. He's not that kind of person. But he's like, I, I can't believe you did this. You know, we're going to break up. So they were getting the force and she she got she flipped out she got really petty like tried to he had, he has like he worked for a banking firm so he gets paid and she was trying trying to take a portion of that and stuff so I, I remember he went through this really hard hard like personal experience but the whole time I was tattooing him and at this point he has both arms sleeved by me and he has one leg sleeved by me and so when they broke up and he started dating, he was noticing he was like more of a, he was like a more well popular guy because he had all these tattoos on him and people, they could relate to him. It's like, 
oh, you're not just like a like an old guy that's like you know stuck in his ways and like judgmental or whatever. It's like, oh, you're open to this sort of stuff. So he was telling me he was like it made him. I mean, it, part, probably part of it was like kind of a placebo effect. It just made him feel better in his own skin. But it, it definitely helped him to like be more out there and express himself. So it actually made him more approachable to people. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, people would ask him about his tattoos. Yeah. You know, and they start talking. And then, you know, in the friendly conversation, he would eventually get dates off that or he'd make new friends off that. And he's a nice social guy. So it's like, you know, his gruffness doesn't turn people away, but he's probably also not as outgoing. And now that he has all this body art on, he doesn't necessarily have to be outgoing so people come to him. Yeah, so it's like a conversation piece. <laughs> That's really cool. Has anybody ever you've ever tattooed like regret putting something on their body, but not not really in terms of what it looks like, but what happened afterwards or how it affected their lives? Well, I think probably my best example that I mean people do regret the tattoos all the time. Um, and what they say though, but it's not that they regret it because they got a big custom piece on them and they wish they didn't. It's because they got a crappy piece by some guy tattoos in his basement and then they go, <laughs> oh, I wish I didn't have this on me. You know, I, I remember the only time that somebody regretted a big custom tattoo was I did a guest spot up in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I'm a fan of the band called Ringworm, and I remember this is old, this is back in MySpace days. They had a MySpace page, and I just liked it. And the singer for Ringworm owns the tattoo shop, and he's like, Hey man, come do a guest spot. So I came and did a guest spot, and that's right when I was like in all the books and the magazines and everything. So people wanted to get tattooed by me just because I was a celebrity. It had nothing to do with what I tattooed. So one guy had a, he I did a big tattoo of Leatherface from Texas Chainsaw Massacre on him on his arm, and he called me up like six months later and said, "Hey, I don't really like horror. I just got it because you were in town. What, what do you think I should get?" I was like, "Well, what do you want to get? I don't. I can't tell you what you should do with your body. I can help guide you whether something would be a good idea or not, but." You have to come up with the ideas first, especially if you're not into what I do. How am I going to know what's best for you? Yeah, that's kind of crazy that he'd be asking you because like a tattoo is really personal. You know, it's, it's whatever you want to put on your body. But at, when I recently got a tattoo and I put a lot of thought into what it means. And the interesting thing is, a lot of people don't ask me what it means. Well, a lot of people haven't seen it yet, but the meaning is really deep for me on why I chose what I chose and even the location of it. Well, one thing I'll say is it's kind of a bad thing that the tattoo shows have done is they make people think that everything needs to have like a super, super deep meaning. Your meaning, I mean, it could have super deep meaning, but your meaning could be, I like it. Yeah. You could say, I really like that piece of art or I really like that comic character or I really like that movie, you know, actor or whatever. And you can get it done on you. And that has a lot of meaning to you because you like the, you like what it represents. You like the way it sits on your body. You, you like all sorts of stuff. It doesn't necessarily have to be like, well, my daughter almost died of 
her, and so I got this in memory of her battle. And it doesn't have to be like that. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, um, it's up to that person um, what right. they want to put on their body, right? Just for me, it has to have a deep meaning. I speak for myself. <laughs> well, I'm just all I'm saying is I'm saying your deep meaning could be that that you're just really into something. It doesn't necessarily have to be like some traumatic life experience. Oh and no, no. Tattoo shows like like my Meek and stuff. They kind of they promote that almost too much, and we get people coming in and they try they want stuff on them, but then they try and explain to us all the deep meaning it has. So it's like. Well, first of all, I don't need to hear it. You're getting that for you. It has nothing to do with what you tell me about it. And second of all, you don't necessarily have to have some like super long meaning behind what you get put on your body. It's really up to you. Yeah. And the interesting thing is my tattoo artist never asked me about the meaning behind my tattoo. <laughs> he just did it. He never asked me, but we talked about everything else. <laughs> Well, people think, like, I've been tattooing for 28 years, and I notice this a lot. People kind of think that visiting the tattoo artist is kind of like their psychiatric visit. And so they'll just unload on you. And, you know, I think that most people that make good tattoo artists, they're kind of personal people, and they yeah. like to talk to people, and they, they like to discuss stuff. But some people will just go on and on and on, and you're like, I, I really can't help you. <laughs> I'm not that guy. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that could feel burdensome maybe if someone's kind of unloading you. And then you can't really get away from it because you're tattooing the person, right? So how do you handle that? It, it's, if they, like, there are some people that, like, maybe their their politics or their their morals or something else is, like, completely opposite anything you believe so when people like start unloading on me i'm just like okay all right uh-huh uh-huh and i just keep tattooing and i don't really i try not to engage too much and one thing that's nice about my parlor is i have a tv screen and we play movies or we play shows or whatever like it, it really helps it helps distract them it helps like give the like draw their attention away from you know, the pain of doing the tattoo on them. And uh, the more that happens, the, you know, the more that they're annoying to talk to, the more it's like, <laughs> oh, well, there's something that you can be paying attention to instead. And I'll just, my, my conversation will get very light. Yeah. So you did write a book. Can you tell me more about your book and what it's about? Yeah, it's apocalyptic sci-fi. Uh, I'll go back a little bit. Uh, I, I always wanted to be a writer or an artist and I couldn't decide what I wanted to do. And then when some of the more complex stuff like Watchmen and The Dark Knight came out, I was like, wait a minute, I can do both. I can you know, write it and I can illustrate it. And uh, there, it was kind of a disappointment when I moved to New York and I'd be with DC Comics and stuff like, they really give you very little control. They keep all the rights to everything. They pay you almost nothing. You know, so what I kind of transitioned into is I'll write full-on novels and I'll do a couple of illustrations in them, kind of like what they used to do back in, like, under the 30s and 40s and, like, pulp magazines and stuff like that. And I'm that's kind of what I've fallen into, and I'm happy with that. And I've always had 
kind of this story is just evolved a lot over time, obviously, because when you're a kid, it's way more simple and, you know, they're probably way more clunky and stuff. But I kind of like the idea in comic books where everything is kind of in one world. Like, like, you know, every, everything affects everything else. They all, they're all in kind of the same continuity, the same universe. So I started my, my first book and I was telling a story about one person and then when I got that published, while well, that was out, I kept writing short stories, and that got collected into my second book. And then I said, you know, that guy published as well as a collection of short stories. And I said, I'm going to write a sequel to the first book with some of the characters from the short stories in it. And that's my current book that's out, uh, The End of the World. Okay. And you had another book that you wrote about what happened to your wife, right? Well, I, I didn't I didn't write any book necessarily about just what happened to my wife. Um, like I, every book that I give has a little bit of like a bio of the author in the back of it, mm-hmm. and I talk about that a little bit in the bio of the author. Um, that was obviously a, a huge experience in my life, and uh, that actually helped prompt me into writing because I was like. I always wanted to do it because I had brain cancer. I kind of put that in pause for a while, and I couldn't focus as, on as much. And I blew up in all the tattoo magazines, so I kind of diverted my attention to that. And I was just tattooing. And then there was a author of a, he was a Irish author named William Simmons, and he wrote a story. It was like kind of a zombie story. And one of the main characters was a tattoo artist. And because I was in all the magazines at the time, he got a hold of me and he wanted me to see if that was a realistic portrayal of a tattoo artist. And I read it and it really wasn't. <laughs> but he was <laughs> it, like what I told him and stuff. And and that kind of like, the, they gave me a little bit of the writing bug again. Like, hey, you really got to get on this. And then my wife dying was kind of like <clears throat> the final impetus. <clears throat> that was, that was, Life was short. I was like, life is, you know, life, life could end any moment now. I really need to get this out. Yeah. And so that, that really pushed me to, to start it full time again. All right. Well, um, you said you had brain cancer. So why don't you kind of walk us into that story a little bit? Like, how old were you? What was happening around the that time in your life and how did you overcome it? Well, I was in my late twenties when they happened and I was a tattoo artist. I'd only been tattooing for two years. And I remember like I was doing uh, Jeet Kune Do and I was studying uh, Muay Thai and I was studying Jiu Jitsu and all that stuff. And I started getting headaches and at first I take Advil and they go away and then they were coming back. So I'm taking Advil twice a day. And then I had this constant, like, dull hum in the back of my head. I was like, after a couple of weeks, I was like, this isn't normal. I got to go somewhere and get it checked out. And I had almost no money. So I went to a clinic, like a cheap clinic in Brooklyn. And they said they had they had samples of the medication. They're like, oh, you have uh, headaches. We have uh, Imitrex, the headache medicine. We have samples. Oh, we're out of the samples, but I'll write you a prescription. And I went to a local pharmacy, and they couldn't even read it. And... Then said, you got to go to a better clinic. So I went to a better clinic and spent money I didn't really have on the better clinic. And they said, oh, you're dehydrated. And they pumped me full of saline solution. They said, call us tomorrow if you feel, you know, if you feel any worse. 
and I had um, Chinese food the night before. So the next morning, I was like throwing it up. I had my head over the sink. And I felt like I had a jackhammer to the back of my head. And the girl who became my wife, she was spending the night with me, and, and she was like calling the clinic nonstop. And when they finally came in, they're like, "Go to the hospital." So when I went to the hospital, like the the my head was throbbing so bad I couldn't even walk straight. I kept walking sideways, and she had to keep correcting me. And we went into the hospital. And they immediately put me in a CAT scan. And they go, what do you do? I said, Muay Thai. They said, oh, it's a brain bleed. And they got the results of the CAT scan. They go, oh, it's cancer. And they're like, yeah, it's, uh, we got up already right away. Like, apparently they did a couple MRIs. They did MRIs with contrast. They said it was a slow-growing tumor. But the inside was all dead. So once it burst open, you know, that would be it for me. And I probably had about two weeks. Oh my God. So where was it located exactly? It wasn't in the brain itself. It was like floating in that brain spinal fluid around the brain, like right behind it is about the size of a golf ball. Wow. And, uh, and apparently cause it kept getting bigger and bigger and that's what was giving me the headaches because it was putting pressure against my brain. So then they had, uh, they, they carved up the, like I, I have a permanent plate in the back of my head and they like basically drill a hole in there and they went in and they cut it up and they removed the particles and they run a pathology on it, tell them whether it's malignant or benign. If it's malignant, it's cancer, you know, it'll probably come back. And they're like, yeah, it's malignant. So, you know, you have to choose what you want to do. And they said I could do radiation or chemotherapy or both. And they had stats and like the stats for chemo was like, 68%, I mean, the stats for radiation was 68% effective. Um, the stats for chemo, there were 40 to 60% effective. And if you did the two together, it was 95% effective. And I was like, I'll do the two together. And yeah. Unless we're living in the matrix, it hasn't come back yet. Oh, so they, they took it out and you got treatment and... And yeah, they, they took it out. They were in a pathology. Um, they started out with the radiation. That's uh, it's 30 sessions. And they don't work on weekends, so it ends up being a little bit more than a month. The radiation isn't that brutal. Um, I had an aunt who just went through the radiation. But the problem is the radiation, if it doesn't kill it, what remains is even stronger now. And when it comes back, you have to fight it with chemo, which is the weakest of the two things. So... You're fighting the stronger cancer with the weaker, you know, the, the weaker remedy. And she died. And I was like, I'm going to do both at once. And hopefully I'll just overwhelm it and get rid of it. Yeah. Yeah. So anybody in your family have anything similar or? No, it's um, <clears throat> the kind of brain cancer I had. It's called a medulloblastoma. It apparently just pops up randomly in people and they don't know why. It has nothing to do with any sort of heredity or, you know, uh, maybe the rest of your family had nothing to do with that. Yeah. Well, like that's my mom a... died of cancer. She had lung cancer. And uh, my grandmother was a heavy smoker. She smoked three packs a day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank goodness you were able to recover from that. Yeah, well, thank you. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show, Dan, and just share with people where your tat, your about your, they can where they can get your books and where your tattoo shop is if they want to look you up. 
Yeah, my, my books are available on Barnes & Noble. They're available on Amazon. Um, <clears throat> my latest one is available as audio. It actually is a bestseller in audio. Apparently, a lot of people don't read. <laughs> but if you go on audible.com, it's available on that. It's called The End of the World. Uh, my website is danhink, it's D-A-N-H-E-N-K.com. So I have everything going on in there, like links to my books, links to my tattoo shop. My tattoo shop is in Long Beach. Long Beach isn't that big. The Long Beach in New York is like Long Island is an island, and Long Beach is a little island on the side of Long Island. And uh, that's where I tattoo. It's called The Abyss. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hi, friends. Thanks for listening. This is your host of the Weirdest Experience podcast, Tina Clark. I also wanted to share with you, I have my own energy healing business called Stargazing Angel LLC. I offer energy healing sessions, EFT tapping sessions, tarot readings, and I also offer classes on Reiki, shamanism, and tarot and more. If you're interested in having a session with me, please call 843-695-7218 or you can email me at contactstargazingangel at gmail.com. You can also check out my website, which is www.tinakinneyclark.com. That's T-I-N-A-K-I-N-N-E-Y-C-L-A-R-K-E. Thank you for listening. If you have a weird experience to share, please email me at contactstargazingangel at gmail.com. Check out our website on tinakinneyclark.com. Also, we're on Facebook and like us on Facebook and share your favorite episodes with your friends and family. I look forward to hearing about your weirdest experience. Thank you.